This is Lancaster, global research tales from the north of England. We believe in palliative care, that we can really meet most of the challenges people face at the end of life, that we can meet the pain needs, their maybe other symptoms they have, we can be there in a supportive environment, we can include the family. It's that sort of holistic approach to the end of life to try and make people feel as supported as possible. And incredibly, people can say it was a good death. Hello, I'm Nancy Preston. I'm a Professor of Palliative Care and Co-Director of the International Observatory on End-of-Life Care at Lancaster University. Hello, I'm Sheila Payne and I'm an Emeritus Professor at the International Observatory on End-of-Life Care at Lancaster University. The inevitability of all life is that sooner or later we will die. And how we die is a really important thing to think about. And palliative care offers an opportunity to enable the process of dying for the person who's dying to be as good as it possibly can. And also for family members to feel supported and comforted in that process. So for me, getting involved in palliative care was about maybe seeing when it didn't go well. And I used to be a nurse and seeing patients die perhaps without maximum medications and support, it made me want to find out more and I changed my career to learn more about that and ultimately do research in this area so that we can smooth that transition. I was working on a care of the elderly unit and patients there... Obviously, a lot of our patients were this for a very long time. You got to know them really well. You got to know their families really well. And it was a couple of patients in particular who we just didn't get on top of their pain. We knew that morphine was an option. We gave it, but there was a huge reluctance to use it. I used to struggle to get other nurses to sign it off with me. And looking back now, the dosage we were giving was so incredibly low. We might as well have been giving them paracetamol. And it just made me think, I need to know how to do this better. I need to get on top of this. And in those days, because you're talking about the 80s, um, palliative care was really just starting to develop in the country. And I don't think we had a palliative care team in the hospital. I was in London, so it should have done in a sense if anywhere was going to have one. And you know, subsequently now all hospitals have palliative care teams. Cancer was the place you went to. So the cancer nurse guided me through the next patient who died went really well we put up a syringe driver we managed all their symptoms so the next patient that came along I did that myself I knew what to do and it just made me realize how important that end of life is and how much more we need to skill people up to manage that so for me it was very much a drive coming out of clinical practice to change practice. Nancy my experience was a little bit different although I trained as a nurse uh, a long time ago um, and then uh, I specialised in operating theatre nursing, which is a a long way from palliative care, and travelled around the world and really had a great time. After a while, I decided to go back to university and and I did a psychology degree and then I did my PhD and it was... At uh, that kind of time, it was about psycho-oncology and uh, it was about the use of palliative chemotherapy. So for chemotherapy for people with uh, breast cancer or ovarian cancer, delivered at home and delivered in the hospital. So we looked at the difference between the two. And at that stage, I started to realise I thought there was lots and lots of evidence around hospices because I knew about hospices and I thought they were a good thing. 
But then when I scratched the surface and looked a bit more carefully, I realised that we didn't have a substantial evidence base, a scientific evidence base about what types of care people needed and how they reacted to this, to the different sorts of options and treatments that were given. And I think that idea about evidence is really fascinating, particularly in palliative care, because Palliative care obviously is trying to do good. We're we're incredibly nice world, you know, everyone. And so it's quite a challenge to go back to palliative care and say, what is the evidence for this? And I think that's, you know, probably where we're coming in sometimes to say, I think we could perhaps do this better. And, you know, particularly some other work people have done around symptom management where you really are changing practice. It's quite a challenge. I mean, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think one area of our research has been about symptom management, and you particularly have been interested in that. I've been rather more interested in uh, organisations, how organisations manage. I've been very interested in um, the role of family caregivers, because they are with the patient throughout the illness experience. And while attention is focused on the patient, quite rightly, family members also suffer and I think that suffering during the process of dying but also in the bereavement period needs more attention and that was one of the areas of focus that I I particularly was interested in but I know you've also looked at that in nursing homes for example. Yeah and I think this is where palliative care started in oncology and you know cancer care Um, In the UK in particular, we're really trying to broaden that out. So care homes is a perfect example where we know people want to die where they feel comfortable. And for some people, home is the care home. And how do we help to support people to manage at home? And we've done some really interesting research about how we support care homes to do that through where sometimes hospices have gone in. A hospice in your care home is an example from uh, that we, we evaluated. But also during the pandemic, we've looked at how the care homes managed and how death was managed in the care homes, how visiting was managed, you know, because you had this dual role for the care homes that they were not only caring, but they were policing. And that was a heck of a challenge for the care homes. And and to be on the receiving end of that as a family member was really disheartening. I mean, the paper came out earlier this year talking about standing at the prison gates, and that's what it felt like to families. Yet at the same time, the care home were desperate to protect people. And this really difficult balance in their role, you know, has been hugely problematic. And at the same time as coping with deaths in the care home and sometimes deaths within care home staff. You may not know, Nancy, there are more care home beds uh, in the UK than there are hospital beds. And so they're a really important pace of health and social care provision. And we looked at this in a study which is called PACE, which is palliative care for older people in Europe. And we did some exploratory work about what are the um, systems of palliative care in different countries. So it was a really interesting study. It was before the pandemic started, but it started to develop an intervention, a way to educate care home staff and a way to involve managers and other people who provide care in care homes. I think what that study makes me think about is that it was quite revolutionary in Europe to be looking at palliative care outside of cancer. And I think that's where um, we've done a number of European studies and a study we looked at about integrating palliative care 
across Europe, we were recruiting from patients who had, may have had a cancer diagnosis, but also heart failure or a respiratory problem, COPD. And it was a real struggle in most of the European countries to identify non-cancer patients because palliative care is so heavily focused on cancer. Whereas in the UK, I think we've developed that a lot more. So we, we probably went the other way and had really good examples from heart failure. We've had some great studies we've done integrating palliative care into respiratory clinics, into heart failure clinics. So we've started to make that bridge. And I think that's where it's important to be us to be in European projects because, you know, that clinical growth we've had in the UK and that expansion of palliative care is really important to get into the European studies which you know in some countries really are developing isn't it palliative care it's quite at its infancy in some countries yeah I mean for example in India people um, will get diagnosed much later so actually the palliative care need is much higher Um, and one of our we have a PhD in palliative care we have students all over the world which means we're actually having a reach to change in you know amazingly in different countries and one of our students uh, was from uh, he's a professor of palliative care in India and children with cancers will present incredibly late and so most of them actually really are only can have palliative care but there's very few palliative care provision and palliative care became a real issue during the pandemic and we I think we all saw India during the second wave and the hospitals were full and the queues of taxis outside in part that was because part of palliative care is knowing when to stop when to give people comfort care when to allow people to go home And instead, they kept treating aggressively and aggressively, even though they knew it was futile. And sometimes you might say, actually, you know, really horrible for the patient and the family. So we were working with ICU doctors across India to um, help them work out how do we start to have palliative care conversations? How do we withdraw treatment? How do we work with our hospital administrators, who are the ones who are saying you can't withdraw treatment? And actually what it does is it allows the people who want to go home and want a palliative approach to have that, because they have a huge number of patients, I mean thousands and thousands a year, who discharge against medical advice from ICU, and they're getting having removal of ventilation in car parks because there's this attitude that we have to keep treating we have to keep going well that was an impossibility anyway in covid so these incredibly brave physicians were working horrific hours on the wards and then in the evenings they were having these webinars with us and we were trying to sort out an intervention and it's really made starting to make some progress now um to even if it is just to change in certain sectors and i think that's what sheila and i do isn't it really we try and think about where is an area we can start to make change and leverage it You've got to try and identify what are the problems to change, and that's what we do as researchers. You can go in and think, so the first thing we do is think is what is the impact we want to make, and then work back and think what are the things we need to change to get to that impact. And probably the biggest problem there was actually the legal system, because the hospital administrators and the doctors were saying, well, we need a law to say it's okay to do that. But law doesn't really work like that. The Indian law, legal system is like the British system. It's often case law with examples. And what we did was we got legal representatives to speak to uh, webinars to try and spread that message so even something as simple as that to explain it is okay illegally you're not going to be sued for doing this because the nurses were already having these conversations with families that's how families were discharging so another example of that is some work that i've been um, privileged to be involved in 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 jordan 
prior to the pandemic, Jordan was, uh, and people, leaders in Jordan were already starting to think about developing palliative care in a cancer hospital, so in a ward where you'd expect it to work. And then what they um, did was they engaged with some international experts, and I was privileged to be one of them. We started to put together a strategy, the first national strategy for palliative care, but importantly for home care in Jordan. After uh, lots of work (laughs) and meeting with government ministers and so on, the good news is that the uh, government in Jordan has endorsed it and funded it. And this is um, fantastic because it's a, a country that is a leader in the Middle East. So they then went on to develop an education programme, an education programme partly for nurses, but also for doctors. And uh, it's now an accredited two-year programme for specialist education in palliative care, um, which other people in the Middle East can access. And I think that um, pioneer leadership is important in different regions and I've got just a little example that have how challenging it is in a culture um, where there's very strong gender differences so when they employ people to go into the home they have to employ a driver but they have to employ both a male and a female nurse because when they go into people's homes they can't just send a person of one gender So it's a major commitment, but it also, what I find fascinating, you have to be really sensitive to the cultural, um, economic and and legal issues in any country that you're working in. So just taking what we do in the UK and imposing it around the world is not what Nancy and I seek to do. We, We try and take ideas that we might have but then work with our colleagues in different countries, either in research programmes or in development projects, to help them make the changes that that might help their patients and their families. It's largely through connections that we have, and I I guess reputation helps. We've got a very strong reputation from the International Observatory. People know about us. When COVID hit, I think probably like everybody, we're all thinking, how can I help? And of course, when you've been a nurse, you feel even more like, should I go back on the wards? How do you change? And what we did instead was we worked with people across the world to try and integrate early developments in palliative care in relation to COVID. So an example was we had um, two PhD students of mine who were working in southern Switzerland, which was an hour from Milan. So when everything went wrong in Italy, the first thing I did was I contacted them because they were in the same wave. So whilst the UK was waiting for it to happen, we got a paper out really quickly saying, well, what do you do? when the hospital becomes overwhelmed with COVID. And we released a paper, it's really quite anecdotal in some ways. What happens when your oxygen is running out? What happens when certain drugs are being overused in ICU and you can't use them on the wards? What do you, what happens, how do you identify someone at different stages of COVID and who needs different interventions? And that really simple paper got used in international guidelines all over the world. And it was just kind of that desire to help which then could be spread out. And that's, you know, using these pioneers in the different countries and working with them. And, to, you know, I, felt like, I think privilege is the word, isn't it? It's really privileged to be able to work with people in different countries that can really make an impact and a difference. 
Thanks for listening to This is Lancaster, global research tales from the north of England. To listen to more, just search podcasts at Lancaster University.